You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that asks the question, why do people believe weird things? I'm your host, Kean, and I'm coming to you, as usual, from the Wide Atlantic Weird cabin. This episode, The Coming of the Greys, Part 1. One from the vaults. Now, it's been a windy, windy, windy day here at the cabin. Uh, outside my window, trees are swaying, branches are going from side to side, and it's a little bit dangerous, to be honest, so I'm not going to record this episode sitting out on my porch as I usually do. There's a little bit of a history to this one, in fact, as it is, as the title suggests, one from the vaults. Now, I've been in touch recently with my sometime co-host, Mr. Chris Joyce. We were musing over the possibility of doing an episode about the history of the grey aliens. So, a standard paranormal topic, really. Whenever anybody in contemporary society thinks about aliens or UFOs, we all think about that classic grey alien type. But I was asking Chris if he knew where this idea came from or how old it was, and we were in the beginnings of putting together an episode that would cover some of the history of this topic. Uh, I went home then afterwards, and I was going through my old files, and I actually remember that three years ago in 2000 or maybe not quite that long ago but in early 2017 we recorded an episode that covered some of that ground already on a previous podcast so that's what you're going to hear on this episode it is a part of an earlier show that we made irregularly that was called off the wagon we did a lot of uh, bad movie reviews and uh, various other strange things we did a, a kiss episode so it wasn't as tightly focused as White Atlantic Weird is supposed to be. But on at least one occasion, we did uh, get together based on our love of strange and paranormal things. Uh, Mr. Chris Joyce at the time, as you'll hear in the cast, was going through a bit of an X-Files renaissance. Uh, having loved it as a kid, he was going back through uh, all the old episodes and watching them again with, uh, you know, through adult eyes, as it were. So even though this episode is a little bit dated, some of the things we'll mention might seem a bit out of date... I was actually quite pleasantly surprised listening back to it. I thought it was funny, I thought it was interesting, and I thought we did a pretty good job addressing some of the topics, um, you know, regarding the UFO phenomena. I had done quite a bit of research at the time, and I managed to get some of my reading into the episode as well. So, I hope you enjoy it. With the things we cover, um, we cover the some of the history of the UFO movement, including the various... 19th century and early 20th century phantom airships, airship sightings. We talk about the 1930s Swedish ghost rockets. Uh, we talk about the X-Files quite a bit, actually. And most importantly, we touch on the 1961 Betty and Barney Hill case, which I have always felt is one of the key cases that has led to the development of the grey alien archetype. So as part of perhaps a mini-series, that if it does indeed go that far, I'm going to call this one episode part one of The Coming of the Greys, one from the vaults. Good afternoon, this is Special Agent Spooky Joyce, and this is my colleague, Agent Creepy Gill. We're here to uh, ask you a few questions about things you may have seen in the night sky recently. Or not seen.
Welcome, I'm Kian. This is uh, Spooky Joyce. <laughs> I will call you Spooky for the entire thing. Please do, please do. You're listening to Off the Wagon. This is our UFO special, so we're getting spooky again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've, uh, we have uh, collected a few stories from the field. I've been doing a bit of investigating, and uh, I've collected a, a surprising amount of uh, UFO stories, actually, from... Uh, I'm surprised. In, in the space of one week, anyway. And Imagine uh, if this was actually your job and you were you were doing it all the time. Imagine what you'd actually find. <laughs> I know. It meant like that guy uh, you mentioned in England. Oh, uh, what was his name? The, the guy who was like the real-life Fox Mulder. That's it. Yeah, jeez, uh, his name. He'll come to me. We'll get to that later. We'll come to that. So, the my point of reference for all this is that in our... In our age of kind of fake news that's happening now, and in in a world where I sound like that guy from the trailers, <laughs> <Weekly> in <laughs> a world, world in a world, <laughs> but like in a world where real life big events and decisions and political happenings are are happening because of fairly questionable uh, media sources, and I think people are like unable to really people are not really trained uh, as to being finding out where their information is coming from. People aren't really great at that. So, I mean, I've always been interested in kind of weird beliefs and conspiracy theories and stuff, but I've always also felt that, well, it's kind of a niche interest. It's not something that's really super relevant to anyone. I never really <laughs> talked about it with people very often, but now <laughs> I am, I'm like both excited and horrified at the fact that conspiracy thinking is really relevant again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting and it's, it's picking up a lot uh, recently. So there's a couple of things we're going to talk about. I mean, I was going to start off and I was going to say, do you believe in UFOs? But I kind of realized that's a bit of a stupid question. It's like saying, do you believe in a lawnmower? Uh, yeah. I suppose the better question would be, what do you believe in about UFOs? Yeah. So, I mean, UFO stands for Unidentified Flying Object. Mm-hmm. That was, that name, it was invented by a guy called uh, Major Alan Kehoe in 1953 in his book, Flying Saucers Are Real. <laughs> so not hedging his bets there with that title and it simply means yeah you've seen something moving in the sky and you don't know what it is and it's not as as a title it is hedging his bets because it's not saying that it's definitely aliens or anything like that even though people tend to immediately jump to that conclusion so I mean if you say I've seen a UFO all you're saying is I saw something strange moving and I don't know what it is and right. you know I mean nine times out of ten it's like a Chinese lantern or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> a few of those around all right in fact i i remember a few ufo scares in ireland over the last few years that did turn out to be uh because of aliens Ch- yes <laughs> chinese lanterns released from weddings often so uh, right. actually there's, there's a lot of news organizations now telling people to stop doing that because inevitably they cause a ufo flap okay is, is that something that you think is is kind of holds any water like they always say like if the government released uh, uh, you know proof of UFOs there'd be mass panic is that something you think would actually happen um yeah I mean the, the people who believe the conspiracies about this people who believe and this goes right back to the beginning of the phenomena as, we, as we'll get into right from the beginning in in the 1940s immediately into the story came this idea that yeah the government know more than they're telling us and that the reason they know more or they're not telling us is because people will panic you know, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think people would be just a little bit okay with it, and just like, well, depending on, obviously, I think what's big, revealed. Big you know? governments, like in particular the US, w- will take a long time to decide how they're going to deal with this, how they're going to present it, what their case is, where they stand before they produce this stuff and make it, make it known. That's what I think. Right. Right. 
So do you want to uh, go into a few stories? Yeah, I, I think to get us started, Chris, if you tell us a few of these stories that you have been collecting on your own investigations recently, right? that would be exciting. Okay, well, n- number one, I'll, I'll start off. Then. Last night, actually, there was a, a radio station in Ireland posted a picture of a UFO that was spotted over the skies of Dublin. Whoa, do you have it there? I do indeed. We'll now, put this on the on the show notes so you can all see it. There you go. Oh. Now, uh, I suppose it looks like we're looking at a, kind of a bank of clouds and there's a fairly bright, white, glowing object. Kind of like, not necessarily oval in shape, but... It looks like someone took a photograph of like a setting sun, but they were moving the camera and it kind of became blurry and misshapen. That's right. Now, there, there's a lot of awful comments in there and there's people saying it's the sun, it's the moon, It's there was a full moon last night, of course. There was actually a really intense full moon last night. Okay. And because it was low in the sky in the winter, there's a kind of an optical illusion that happens when it's closer to the horizon. Because you have things to actually compare it to, like buildings and hills and trees and stuff, uh, it, it can sometimes seem bigger. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Apparently, yeah. that's a, a a known optical illusion. Right. So, I mean, honestly, I don't know what that is. It 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 seems to be too bright for a, a Chinese lantern. Or I will. I will say that I've seen those Chinese lanterns, and they do look. They can be as bright as that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if if that's what it was. Right. But, yeah. So, what was the context of the story? Was it just someone saw something weird? Someone saw <laughs> something weird in the night sky. Okay. And took a photo of it. And they sent it through. Now, is this a reputable news source, Chris? Uh, it's reputable enough. It's 4FM. I mean, it's you're, you're going to be wearing chinos listening to you are. 80s hits, you know. But and uh, but so, not particularly known for their hysteria-causing nonsense. Not really. I mean, I, it's been a long time since I, I've actually listened to terrestrial radio or extraterrestrial radio. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they're listening to you, though. You know, think about all those broadcasts going out into space. I've seen contact. Remember, <laughs> at, the, remember at the beginning with the, the radio waves going out into space? Yeah. <laughs> like all the stuff from history, yeah. So that's one of our local stories. Yeah, there's a, actually a, a couple of other local stories that have happened in the past uh, month, actually, which is kind of strange. All to be grouped around. And uh, honestly, I don't know what to make of them. I, I spoke to some guys sometimes in a bar. Maybe that could lead to something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I remember Fox Mulder meets a lot of his contacts in Paris. <laughs> he meets the cigarette smoking man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all over the place. He, that's that's his contact in the X Files, right? Who's the the or the deep throat guy? Doesn't he meet him in a bar? He does at one stage. Yeah, I, it might be worth noting. I'm halfway through the X Files at the moment. I'm in season four, and it's a long, long series, but it's uh, <laughs> it's worthwhile watching every single episode because I. I, I, I couldn't do it without watching all. You're not allowing yourself to uh, to skip. That's right. So, that, I, I suppose the next incident I'm going to report to you there, Keen. You can make of it what you will. But um, a, a friend of my mother's. Well, I live in a kind of a rural area in the middle of nowhere, and there's an agricultural uh, college uh, nearby that has a giant water tower uh, up on the hill. And anyway, my, my my friend's uh, my mother's friend lives close by, and. Uh, he just recently there after New Year's he uh, woke up at 2 a.m. the dead of night and he looked over to the uh, agricultural college by the water tower and he uh, witnessed a kind of a, a thing that he described as big as a helicopter Whoa. filled with lights um, descending slowly but he, he said he didn't hear any sound of a helicopter and he would have because it was so close um, he doesn't think it was a drone, it was 
too small and uh, to be a drone, or too large to be a drone. And uh, of course, who flies a drone at night? There's not really a point if you're taking pictures, is there? No. Um, so that kind of put that one out of the way, and he, he doesn't have a clue what the hell it was. Did he say drones are noisy? Did he mention whether there was any sound? He said there was no sound that he could hear. Okay, because drone. I didn't think of that. Like, drones are a huge new source of potential, you know, UFO sightings. <laughs> and, and But they make noise. They're really noisy. Yeah, if you've yeah, ever been next to one. I have. Um, so, it seems to rule it out. Now, I looked at some of the flight plans of that night. Whoa. And there wasn't I, I know there's a training school an aviation training school uh, near here and it does flights down alright and I, I know you have to have a certain amount of nighttime flying under your your belt before you get behind the wings of a, a Foo Fighter no <laughs> um, but uh, yeah it, there didn't seem to be any planes going down that direction that time and that's the I, honestly I, I, I don't know what it was the guy seems like a, according to my mother anyway he's a, a legitimate Source. He's not the kind of guy to be uh, hmm. uh, causing him. But is he going? Is he telling people this story just casually? Like he's not, he's not ashamed of it or anything. He's not afraid of people making fun of him. He's he's happy to tell his his story. Yeah, he was just he mentioned it in passing to to my mother, and I, I I'm in line of sight of the water tower as well. Oh, keep your eyes open. I will indeed. Over the next few nights. See, yeah. that's inter- people's attitudes towards a sighting is interesting to me because, like, to me, if I saw, saw something like that. It would like change everything that I think I I know about how the, how the universe works. So that would be a huge deal for me. I couldn't possibly just like slot it into my worldview and just be like casually, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, aliens are real. Yeah, yeah. I I, like it would shake up everything for me. But like that's why I'm astonished by people who take these things in their stride. Mm-hmm. Um. Also, I, I suppose there 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 didn't seem to be any kind of further explanation for it and he's been asking around and nobody's heard anything oh to interrupt the, the name of the guy has just come to me the fellow you mentioned earlier uh, the, the guy who worked for the the MOD British oh, yeah. Ministry of Defence his name was Nick Pope Nick Pope and he was um, great name yeah great, great name but he was the guy whose his job in the 90s was to sit at a desk that was effectively the UFO desk so all <laughs> the uh, the crazy sightings and stuff went to this one desk and this guy worked there and he had to deal with them and he is a really interesting guy he travels around now doing talks and stuff about his experience at the desk and with the MOD he's quite sensible and serious he doesn't believe in a lot of really weird out there stuff and he does say that like you know well 95% of these things do get solved or don't seem to be anything important but he's like there is a very small percentage of things that <clears throat> seem unusual mm-hmm. and he himself even is convinced that there is something going on even if it is small he doesn't think that there's any government conspiracy he says like you know the government has tons he's talking about the british government he says they have a lot of bureaucracy everything moves slowly things get classified and become declassified only after many many years mm-hmm. so for example over the last two years the mod has declassified a lot of ufo documents and you can go online and look at them and you can read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories but they're all they're kind of meaningless it's like someone sees something and reports it and then that's it it doesn't go any further than that and put you the can stamp on it put the stamp you but these are things that can never be proven or disproven right. because it's all based on witness testimony so nick pope is, is a really interesting guy the only thing i will say about him that kind of rings alarm bells for me is that he, he now he's on like the ufo talk speakers circuit yeah so I, that's his living and and he goes around talking to people who already believe all this stuff and who are 
So, you know, he's, he has a foot in that world as well. D- David Icke is doing a, a show in Dublin next week, actually. Wow. 12 hours of talking about lizard people and he, he does long shows he does longer shows than Bruce Springsteen yeah I'll be in Dublin the same day oh. I actually have a friend of mine who, who's actually going to provide one of the next stories uh, his name I, I, I've chosen not to mention oh protect the innocent <laughs> the names have been chosen have trust been... no one deceive everybody <laughs> names have been changed to protect the innocent <laughs> um, and he's, he's going up to David Egg next week but uh, is he into that sort of thing he is. I, I mean, he. I would say he's a very straight-laced fella. You know, he's got a head on his shoulders. I, I, a sound head on his shoulders, rather. Everybody has a head <laughs> on their shoulders. And, uh, you know, he, he's interested in reading up about conspiracy theories, UFOs, and that sort of I thing. I would go and see David Icke out of interest, I think. Yeah. But Not sure would I stay there for 12 hours. No, and he, he borders on things that I, I find troubling. Okay, yeah. To, to put it one way, but like, I, uh, I would take an interest in brain in a jar stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the next story in, involves this uh, gentleman who was uh, driving around uh, the East Cork location the Saturday before Christmas. Okay, and uh, now he saw several kind of bright lights in the sky, um, moving and kind of around and around. And uh, now he first. I, thought of all the logical conclusions and he he actually ended up driving around that area for a few hours oh so he was really interested in tracking this down yeah he was trying to find the source which is like a a good sign he was trying to come to a logical conclusion and he crossed off almost everything that he could so he said it wasn't the ferris wheel it wasn't like a christmas show that hope happens nearby i've been fooled by those before i've been fooled by like christmas lights that are broadcast up into the sky and clouds spinning around mm, and he he went and like legitimately tried to find the source of these moving lights in the sky um, there, there's even an open air cinema nearby I, I said was it that and he said no it was nowhere near that and he, he drove past the, the, the open okay. air cinema anyway um, and he said these lights were going around for, for a couple of hours um, that Saturday night before before Christmas there and uh he couldn't get to the bottom of it. Now, I don't know what that could be. Uh, it doesn't sound like uh, like I raised all the usual Chinese lantern stuff to him and uh, drones and that sort of thing. And he was just like, no, that didn't. Like he, he's kind of well into you know, debunking stuff. Yeah. So he was just like, it's not. That didn't really fit the yeah. the profile of any of that. So um, that's uh, it's another recent sighting. There are definitely people I would. From whom I would take a sighting more seriously, based on on kind of how scientific minded I think they might be, or how uh, how much they might be willing to look into the poss- the different possibilities. So it sounds like this guy checked out every possible explanation one mm-hmm. that he could. That's at, right. At the time right. and place. And fair play to him. Now the next source you're definitely not going to find credible because <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Now, it's only a short story, but I, I remember the day very, quite clearly. I was uh, walking through Ballancolig. It wasn't late at night. It was in the afternoon. Was this a long time ago? I would have been 14 or 15. Okay. Um, and uh, I I never really grew up with any interest in UFOs. I wouldn't have been chasing them. In fact, I was terrified of the X-Files. That's uh, especially the intro sequence. So I, I stayed away from all of that sort of stuff. Uh, for a good while, and uh, I remember looking up into the the sky uh, while I was passing what is now 
McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Is this in Balancholic? Balancholic, no. Oh, next to the, yeah, on the main road. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I was looking northwards, where we're actually looking right now, actually, more or less over those hills there. Oh, spooky. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, if you want to Google map it, the Bearings area is where it would have been over if it was over anything. And it was, um, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it was a, a silver cigar-shaped object that I saw going across the, slide, the sky very slowly. Um, it didn't look like a plane because I've seen a bunch of planes, you know. Planes. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're both close to the airport. We're used mm-hmm. to seeing things going overhead. That's right. And that's, as far as I know, that's not on any flight, flight path going the direction it was going. And uh, it, I looked at it for a good few minutes and it just moved very kind of slowly across the sky. Uh, Silently? I didn't hear any sounds and there was also... It wasn't moving quite as quick as I would see a jet plane moving, but uh, certainly was a like a, a silver c- cigar shaped object. Is there any chance it was like a blimp or something? It seemed too thin to be a blimp. Right. I'm not sure. Are there any blimp operators in in the O two one area? <laughs> <laughs> but I'll get my uh, agents on it and check it out. Wow. And and how long was it there? I stayed watching it for about four to five minutes. Now, I don't know what it was. I, I Am I going to say it's a UFO? Yes, because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that one's been well worn out at this stage. Yeah. So that's that's my little story. Hmm. What I, do you think it was really, yourself? Do you have a personal take on it? Honestly, I have no idea. I mean, it certainly wasn't a plane. It it was too nondescript to be that. It, it there was no clouds in the sky. It was grey like a like a cloud would be, but it was it was too uniform and hmm. uh, it looked to be so no other um, marks on it. No wings. No lights. Didn't, no. Didn't see nothing. Just going. You know. So that's uh, that's my little story. I'd always thought that if I ever saw something like this, nobody would believe me because like I've always had an interest and I've always had tons <laughs> of books about it and. Yeah, right. I like I I would expect me to be the kind of person who would have a sighting, but I never have. Okay, okay. No, honestly, I have no idea what it was, <laughs> and I'm not saying it was aliens, but it's aliens. <laughs> but it's aliens. <laughs> as the meme goes, that's it. Space aliens. I I have one more source to mention. All right, he's a he's a guy from my locality as well, uh, out in rural Ireland. Now, this guy's promised to sit down with me and explain in detail a lot of interactions he has had with intergalactic beings. He sounds like Randy Quaid from Independence Day. <laughs> he could very well be. Now, the men in black showed up and uh, it, we had to call our uh, meeting to a halt. So we didn't get to interview him for this. Oh, they're so bad for doing that. <laughs> I know. That <laughs> Just when you think you're going to get what you need. <laughs> so uh, our next podcast will be on... Possibly conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories. So we're going to try and get uh, an interview off uh, this guy. Apparently he has lots of uh, relevant information to our cause. (laughs) Well, I mean, the the interesting thing is, like, if we're talking about UFOs or something, we're kind of thinking about whether this is real or not. If we're talking about conspiracy theories, we're just interested in people who believe weird things. So, like, it doesn't really matter if it sounds real or convincing. The Mm -hmm. the point of it is that someone believes it. Mm -hmm. Now... All these stories I've said that like 
there's no kind of in official investigations into well, any well, of them. Well, well, now besides ours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. So I, I mean, that sort of wraps it up for for my field work. Well, <laughs> this time very, very well done, Agent Joyce. <laughs> thank you. We're very impressed. Your, your, your superiors will be will be informed <laughs> of your prowess. Uh, thank you very much, and I'll be relegated to the basement for the next <laughs> 10 years. So I, I'm sitting next to a stack of UFO lore, oh. tomes of books. You, you feel free to have a look at those. I'm going to peruse. You've chosen the most childish one, the Osborne one. <laughs> it's so like the best one. It is the best one. It's probably got the most truth in it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back in time to look at the beginnings of the, the modern UFO phenomena. And oh, we're, yeah. I'm going to focus on two cases. I'm going to focus on the, the 1947 Kenneth Arnold case and the 1961 Betty and Barney Hill case. Oh, cool. So these two cases, out of all the cases that I've ever read about, seem to have been most influential in kicking the UFO myth into, into the shape that it's in today. Mm-hmm. And I think they're the most useful to help us learn from kind of a sociological point of view, how did, how did this idea get to be the way it is? Because mm-hmm. when you say UFOs... People think immediately, oh, flying saucers, aliens, little green men with big heads. Like, where did all that come from? Where did all that iconography come from? Why is it so ubiquitous? Why does everyone around the world think of the same things? And I think a large amount of it is down to these two cases. But I'll present the evidence and you can make up your own mind. As Please always. do. Please do. Okay, so there are precedents to this 1947 sighting, okay? Things that happened beforehand, but they're, they're pretty questionable. Now, if you buy any UFO book or history of the phenomena written by some kind of true believer, they'll point to various ancient sources and they'll say, oh, people have been seeing weird things in the sky for hundreds of years. And they'll point to, you know, accounts from the Bible or from the Epic of Gilgamesh and, you know, questionable sightings and questionable reports of things like, you know, flying dragons or wheels of fire or, or chariots moving in the sky and things like this. And I'm not really convinced by those. I think that's people looking back and reinterpreting in, right. in, in the light of what they currently believe. Yeah, I can totally get you know? that. I mean, in another age, we would have said that those things were signs from heaven or demons or angels or anything, exactly. depending on your Could worldview. Could be a volcano or something. Could be a volcano, right? Yeah. So I'm going to take that stuff out of the picture and say, really, the modern UFO phenomena was born in 1947. Okay. But there are important precedents that we need to know about because... There have been previous flaps of weird things in the sky in more recent times. I'm going to focus on briefly on something called uh, the Phantom Airship Scare. Oh. Have you ever heard of this? I have not, no. So, did you know Ooh. that in 1896 and 97, in the west of America, there was a widespread belief that people in some kind of futuristic airships were patrolling the skies? What? Yeah, this this was put forward in articles in the Sacramento Bee and the San Francisco Call, so newspapers from California. Uh, they reported the first sighting on November 18th, 1896. Witnesses reported a light moving slowly over Sacramento on the evening of November 17th at an estimated 1,000-foot elevation. Some witnesses said they could see a dark shape behind the light. A witness reported he heard a voice from the craft issuing commands to increase elevation in order to avoid hitting a church steeple. Uh, and above them, a peddling man seemed to be a, in a passenger compartment, which lay under the main body of the ship. And a light was mounted on the front end of the airship. Oh, well. What does that sound like to you? What does that make you think of? Um, I was going... <laughs> wild, wild west. Yeah. Isn't it like steampunk, kind of? Yeah. But but this is the level of technology people were kind of expecting, right? Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. I mean, uh, also, this is before mass media when people you know probably want to get into news to some certain extent yeah. 
And, you know, if you're getting a report like that at that time of, of this era, yeah, it's going to be trustworthy enough, would you think? Actually, uh, upon looking up this from other sources, there was very much uh, a culture in the in the West at that time, and this is beyond the Wild West period. This is almost the year 1900. But newspapers were well known for publishing what we'd now call fake news in those days. Really? Yeah, crazy okay. stories about how... how bizarre life in the west was they would exaggerate stories about how cold it was and how in, in, intense the weather was and how ferocious the wildlife was and oh. this extended just a little bit to this this weird short-lived uh, flap of seeing airships in the sky and think about where they were technology-wise at that time right airships were everyone thought this was going to be the future okay they there had been kind of like zeppelins and, and dirigibles in some form for about 50 or 60 years at this point now they weren't very advanced they weren't capable of doing very long-term trips mm-hmm. um most of it was happening in europe the germans were well known for it of course hindenburg was involved yep. in the late 19th century and <clears throat> uh, von zeppelin as well which is where we get their names now we associate with with airships but this is what people expected that future flying craft are going to be like, and lo and behold, that's what they started to report. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That, yeah, that's great. That's great. Now, here's a report from um, Mike Dash. Mike Dash, is a, he's a guy who writes for the Smithsonian Historical um, uh, websites. He's a really, really good guy. I have a couple of books by him, and he's a, I consider him a credible reporter. And he did a, <clears throat> he did a write-up on this, this whole phenomenon of the phantom airships, and he says... Not only were the mystery airships bigger, faster, and more robust than anything then produced by the aviators of the world, but they seemed to be able to fly enormous distances, and some were equipped with giant wings. The 1896-7 airship wave is probably the best investigated of all historical anomalies. The file of almost 1,500 newspapers from across the United States have been combed for reports. The general conclusion of investigators was that a considerable number of the simpler sightings were misidentifications of planets and stars, and a large number of the more complex ones the results of hoax and practical jokes. Mm. Does that remind you of the the current state of UFO sightings? To a certain extent, yeah. In terms of the way people interpret them and what we think they mean. This is what people expected to see, and, and once the story started, they... They took off. It's it's like the clowns from, from last summer, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> These stories just grew legs. And guess what? It went to Europe. So there was a series of mystery airship sightings uh, in other parts of the world in 1909 in New England, New Zealand, and European locations. And there were big spots of it in the UK in 1912, 13, 14, and 15. Wow. Now, by this point, the Germans ha- had their airship technology quite far along. And it would it would certainly not be impossible for them to have made travel secret voyages to Britain, for example. But all the stories, and when you read the details of them, they're all about, um, they're very human. People see these mysterious, inexplicable things that probably didn't really happen. But the way they reported them was all like, oh, we saw this craft. And people will report seeing the craft landed and seeing the, the aeronauts get out. And, and like they would be smoking pipes and they would be talking in some foreign European language and... You know, I have two questions there. Is there any reason why people would have been telling these tall tales of the West? I would say the same the same reason that people always tell weird tales. You know, things get out of hand. Okay. And one of these books here has uh, a cartoon which I might photograph and put uh, here. It is, and I put on the show notes. But it's it's making making a comment on this airship flap. So there's a little cartoon, and it's from 1913. So when when this was really taking off in Britain. The first picture is a small child who's lost a balloon. 
and this <laughs> balloon is kind of sausage shaped and it's floating off into the sky. <laughs> Great. And the next picture is, is a policeman, like a, a typical British Bobby, and he sees this balloon floating in the sky, but now it's it's become mysterious and okay. it looks a little bit more like it could be something. That looks like what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like an airship. The next picture is an old guy with a top hat. And he sees it, but he's starting to notice that, oh, this thing's, there's like a, a deck hanging from beneath it, and it looks even more like a dirigible. And then in the next scene, he's telling a friend about it, and he's exaggerating it because he's making it sound like it was big and close, and he could see a craft underneath it. And then in the last picture, that guy is telling his friends in the pub <laughs> about what happened, and now the thing has become a massive big airship with men inside it and guns. And That's great. It's, it's just a really simple description of, even back then, 1913, people understood how stories grow evolve evolve and grow legs and i just i think it's it's fantastic is there any chance that this was um a a government operation new technology because i I certainly don't imagine at that time america isn't what or was not the country that we know it as today it wasn't well i mean european nations had airships and they had been experimenting with this technology for years and there had been nothing secret about it all right you know I mean, the only secret would be the fact that they were slightly more ahead of it than we thought they were, and they were capable of making these longer trips, but nothing really ever came out of it. Okay. You know, airships had a certain role in the World Wars, but they weren't like this really important killer secret weapon that, you know, the Germans used them for terror purposes because they look scary and they were able to drop bombs, but they were they were clumsy and they were inaccurate and mm. I don't know. It doesn't, I just, it strikes me as a social phenomena rather than a real nuts and bolts scientific one. Okay. The next uh, pre-1947 story, which I think is relevant, in, in the 1930s in Scandinavia, there was a series of what we now call the Swedish ghost rockets. Oh. So think about it, 1930s, okay, rocket technology is what's in the public consciousness at this point. Okay. Long, thin craft with fins and pointy noses, right? Mm-hmm. Buck Rogers stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Flash Gordon. Okay, so I'm going to read from one of my books, my world-famous UFOs book on page 80. It's been ripped out by the men in black, has it? (laughs) That that page is missing. (laughs) We've been conspired against, actually, when we were setting up this podcast again. Again, oh, by more technical difficulties. Gremlins. It's not gremlins. It's it's the men, it's the MIV. (laughs) Yeah. So... Throughout the early 1930s and into the late 40s, Scandinavia, and particularly Sweden, was the setting for a particular form of UFO sighting known as the ghost rockets. They first occurred around the Arctic Circle near the Swedish-Norwegian border in the last months of 1933, when distant lights in the valleys were sighted by local people. The assumption made was that the lights were made by smugglers, but customs action found no support for this claim. And the most substantial of them was that on July 19th, 1946, Two witnesses observed a small object crash into Lake Komierv. I'm probably going to mangle that pronunciation. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of more stories about this. There were hundreds of sightings, and they all looked like rockets. And they crashed. They were crashing and landing in lakes, but no debris was ever found. Oh. But it's, you've got to think, like, in the 1930s, people expected that futuristic tech was going to look like a rocket, because that was the state of the art at the time. Just right. like the... You know, the airships were the state of the art, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. So then could you probably say if there was any kind of modern sightings uh, back in pre-1850, could you say that those would be even more believable than... Because because people would have interpreted them in the way that made sense to them at the time? Yeah, well, let's say somebody in 
the 1600s saw like something that resembled an airship or something like that yeah would that be a lot more believable than somebody uh today who <laughs> said this on an airship because well, they have no idea what it was or uh, i have a picture here and a book of uh, a suppose here it is a supposed ufo um encounter from 1566 and it's Depicted as fleets of huge oh, globes heard about this one, yeah. seen over a town called Basel in Europe on the 7th of August. And look at how they've interpreted this almost as like a cosmic right. uh, or a religious event. Yeah. Which is probably how they would have seen it at the time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what you see is shaped massively by what you expect and, and your understanding of the world. So all what what this is all leading up to is the the 1947 case, which, like I said, is is I, I think is the birth of the modern UFO phenomena. And I think by 1947, people were ready for this. The space age was about to get going. You know, I mean, Sputnik was only a few years away. Um, science fiction had been prepping people for years to be familiar with the concepts of spaceships and rockets and aliens and interplanetary travel. You know, the pulp magazines had been telling stories about this for 30 years more at this point. So, for some reason, when this story went down, people were ready for it. And one of the weird things about it was that uh, when, it, when it first broke, there had been nothing like it in, in, in some ways. With the, if you think about flying saucer shapes, right? The classic saucer shape, the, the Mars attacks kind of saucer. Yeah. <laughs> what I saw, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you saw the, the cigar shape, right? Oh. Is that right? That's right. And that's a kind of a later evolution okay. of it. The original flying saucer shape has quite little precedence in fiction. So there was a, a con- an artist of, of pulp magazines called Frank R. Paul, and he did covers for things like uh, Science Wonder Stories, and in 1929, he drew something that looked a bit like a flying saucer in the front of one of his magazines. I don't have access to the picture now, but I'll put it on the show notes. On the show notes. Uh, but he did lots of unusual shapes, and, and, and just because I have a lot of books about this kind of art, I don't feel like the, the notion of flying saucers had currency <coughs> prior to this particular sighting. Mm-hmm. And again, Buck Rogers, I mentioned it already, uh, in 1930 and 1934, there were comics in Buck Rogers and Flash Gordons that have things that look a little bit like flying saucers. They're spaceships that are circular. Uh, but again, this is not a common motif at this point, prior to 1947. So, here's the main event, this guy, Kenneth Arnold. So, he was born in 1915 in Minnesota, grew up in North Dakota, graduated from my old alma mater, University of Min as a chemical engineer, and later learned to fly. So he, he owned his own plane, and he moved to Idaho, and he flew from one town to another in five western states, selling and installing automatic and manual firefighting equipment. And on one of these trips, he saw nine mysterious crescent-shaped objects flying in formation above Mount Rainier in Washington State. This is the Ur event in UFO history. Okay. So he was there because six months earlier, a Marine Corps C-46 transport plane with 32 people aboard had crashed into the southwest side of the mountain. The government had offered a $5,000 reward for the discovery of the wreckage and the recovery of the bodies. So as this guy, Kenneth Arnold, was a member of the Idaho Search and Rescue, uh, he was out there on the job and he, he went by the mountain just in case he would spot this plane. Because apparently this was a common thing for pilots to do at that place and at that time. And here's what he says in his very first radio interview. And the language he uses is really important here because this is the birth of the phenomena. Can you put on a Minnesota accent? Uh, (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) Those days are gone. (laughs) Well, about 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima. 
And of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found, that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located, it's about, about 10,000 foot, and I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons, and was dragging it for any types of objects that might prove to be the marine ship. And as I come out of the canyon there, about 15 minutes later, I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,000 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. At first, I thought they were geese, because they seemed to fly like geese, but it was going so fast that I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, I thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day and I didn't know where their destination was. But due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by, I just thought I'd see how fast they were going, since among pilots we argue about speed so much. And they seemed to flip and flash in the sun, just like a mirror. And in fact, I happened to be in an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these peculiar-looking things in such a way that it almost blinded you when you looked at them through your plexiglass windshield. So he talks a little bit more about some of the details about how he tried to figure out how far away they were and how fast they were going. And then he says, They didn't fly in a conventional formation that's taught in our army. They seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintops. And I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances, probably a hundred feet. But I could see them against the snow. He talks a little bit more about how fast they were going and how far, yeah, he, again, he's trying to figure out. He says, there isn't anything I've read about outside of some of the German rockets that would go that fast. Uh, they were flying in more or less a level, constant attitude. They weren't going up and they weren't going down. They were just simply flying straight and level. Uh, the newscaster then says, I think this is kind of illuminating. Kenneth, thank you very much. I know that you've certainly been busy these last 24 hours because I've spent some of the time with you myself. And I know that the press associations uh, have been right after you every minute. The Associated and the United Press all over the nation have been after this story. It's been on every newscast over the air and in every newspaper I know of. So this was huge. Right. And guess what happened immediately afterwards? Other people started reporting the same things in the same places. Oh. So, so they're... they're yeah, I see where you see it's how, all see, matching up the pattern. Match, yeah. So Arnold wrote a book in 1952 called The Coming of the Saucers. Do you have any opinions on what it might have been? Um, I we'll never know. It was such a long time ago. There was only one witness. He seems to have been a pretty straightforward guy. Most people I've read about who knew him uh, said that he was pretty, pretty sensible, pretty sober. He was an experienced pilot. He knew what planes looked like when they were out and about. He knew what birds looked like when they were out and about. Uh, one of the main possibilities that's, that's hinted at often is certain kinds of geese and large American birds. There are some interesting videos on YouTube that we might put a link to that do kind of look a bit like, like large birds flying in formation that do sound like what he reported. Mm-hmm. I would imagine he would know that when he saw it, right. but we'll never know because we're not there. But in his book, he we, says... We might know, because, the, you know, the truth is out the there. The truth is out there. You're right. Um, but he says something important in his book. Oh, here it is now. As I put it to the newsman in Pendleton, Oregon, they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. And there you go. And a, a newsman, based on this, <coughs> coined the term flying saucers. 
despite the fact that when he describes them, they don't really sound like they look like saucers. But that's what people started to report. Right. Even though that wasn't ever what he claimed to have seen. Okay, so this is from an article by a guy called Kottmeyer. He's quite sceptical about the Kenneth Arnold sighting and about UFOs in general, but he does say something I think is important. He says, The shape of the objects Arnold saw is hard to describe in a word or two. It wasn't like a plane or a rocket or even a disc. But when the newsman Bill Beckett wrote the story up for the news services, he recalled Arnold's describing the motion of the objects as like a saucer if you skip it across the water. Jumbling the metaphorical intent of the description, Beckett labelled the objects flying saucers. Arnold himself said in his book that the term arose from a great deal of misunderstanding, but the public didn't know this. No drawing ever accompanied his story. You're right back to that cartoon that you showed me. Yeah, isn't that, isn't it interesting? Yeah, I, I thought I had a, a description of um, his his original description of the objects. Um, I remember him saying basically they looked kind of like a pie plate cut in half with a chunk taken out of the back. So okay. he's, he kind of makes them almost sound like boomerang shaped in a way, right. if that makes sense. Flat and boomerang shaped. Okay. But, like like a, a crescent moon. Yeah, yeah, almost. almost like a crescent moon, yeah. But that, that image was almost never shown. So like straight away... Flying saucers. Um, I have uh, page eighty nine. I have a picture here that uh, I'll put on the on the show notes. But on page eighty nine in in From Other Worlds, as Jeff Goldblum may, may have said in Jurassic Park, you patented it, you packaged it, and, and you, you put it on a plastic, plastic lunchbox. Lunch well, here's the picture. It. This is supposed to represent the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and you can see quite clearly the author has or the the, the artist has drawn a flying saucer, but he's just put a little kink at the back to. Okay. Pay lip service to the <laughs> fact that actually they, they were described as being more like boomerangs. Right, right. But immediately this is how they were portrayed, more like saucers. And, and, and there's lots of reports from the early days after that. So let's see now. In the Oregonian, a newspaper from June 28th, 1947, so just shortly after the original sighting, a Kansas City carpenter said that he saw nine discs as well. So did a pilot in Oklahoma City. Uh, still another version in a night flight was told by Archie Eden of Wenatchee who saw a speeding object descending in a long slant while he was driving on the Moses Lake Highway. A Yakima, Washington woman reported seeing them Tuesday afternoon. They sped so fast you could not count them. In Portland, uh, a witness saw some flying discs south of Kelso last Friday. She said they were bright and shiny. So yeah, something becomes popular in the in the popular consciousness, and and, and do you think that kind of uh, I was I was going to call it a media diversion, but like a, the description that the media gave there of flying saucers. Do you think that basically obliterates any account of flying saucers after that? Well, I think it just shows you that the way we interpret the world is massively coloured by our perceptions. Right. So okay. if people are expecting to see flying saucers. That's what they're going to see. But you wouldn't necessarily say they're all phony <laughs> because I mean, of that. We'll never, I mean, we'll never know, will we? Yeah, but so. it does kind of make it seem as though the whole thing is built on a fallacy, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> yes, yeah, Like, the original case is interesting because he was a credible witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't report anything that was too bizarre or unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And we really, really don't know what it was. We never will. I'm always really interested in finding out people's motivations for reporting these things because... Yes. He never made a lot of money off this. 
Okay. He did, he wasn't a, a huge self promoter. Did he expect to make a lot of money off it? Though? I don't think so. Well, no one knew because this was completely new. Right. No one. This somehow the world was ready for it. You know. Okay. And, and it took off, but I don't. I can't imagine he or anybody else knew. And like, how would you make money off reporting a, a UFO sighting? Like, well, um, lots of people in the period after this did. So, in the nineteen fifties, there was this movement uh, called the, called the contactee movement, which is people who were saying, "Yeah, I see flying saucers all the time. Yeah, I meet the I meet the aliens. We hang out. They they've taken me into their ship." And these people would often become people like George Adamski would be one of the early ones. They would become gurus. And they would start their own cults and religions. Think wow. about like Heaven's Gate. Remember them? Okay. The Hale-Bop people. Right. That sort right. of thing. This was big in the 50s. I see where you're going with that one. Yeah. So, okay, that's a pretty negative example. But most of these guys were a bit, a bit more like, I don't know, who would be like a kooky cult leader? I'm trying to think of one that isn't really horrible, like Jim Jones or something. Fresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steve Jobs. No, Steve Jobs. <laughs> so Arnold, Kenneth Arnold, for the rest of his life, he, he was kind of, this hung over him. He had several more sightings later in his life. And quite early on in, in, in the proceedings, in his writings, he starts to come up with the notion that maybe these are extraterrestrials. So this idea is in there right from the beginning. And not only that, but he believes that people are seeing these frequently and they're being told not to talk about them by the Air Force. So right from the beginning of the phenomena, you have this aspect of conspiracy and all the ingredients are there yeah isn't that crazy yeah he was a really interesting guy see so, that that's what i find like kind of believable i mean i i personally don't believe that the government has made contact with any extraterrestrials for like one or two reasons number one being the the amount of manpower it would take to, to cover something like that up there's going to be one or two leaky faucets, we'll say. Oh. And I, I honestly don't think that we have enough developments in, in, in mind control or cloning to, to to make that feasible. Okay, that's why I don't believe. But um, going back to what you said there, I can't remember what you said there. <laughs> mind control. Uh, oh, it's uh, well, about the conspiracies and, and the government or the Air Force. Yeah, so that's what I find is believable, is that it was just a legitimate Air Force Experiment technology that they were yeah. trying to hide. I mean, that's entirely possible. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Now, that's not to say I don't believe that there are space aliens or Martians. Well, well no, actually, I mean, like the, the original Roswell incident, in, also in 1947, was at first, you know, something failed, fell down from the sky, mm-hmm. and a farmer found it, a rancher in New Mexico, and the government said, "Oh, it's a weather balloon." And then, like a couple, like twenty years later, they were like, "Actually, no, it was this device that we used for, for measuring radiation and for testing if the Russians were exploding bombs." And it's like, well, now, like all this conspiracy literature has been born from the fact that you were being secretive about this, you know. So they do. I mean, and and Area Area Fifty One, which has only recently they have admitted exists, <laughs> and is now on maps again, and Google Earth and stuff. But that, I mean, that was a place for, for testing secret aircraft. You know, that's always what they've used it for. That's pretty well known. Yeah, I, I, can, I can get on board with that. That's, that would be my... There's lots view. of evidence. People, the leaky faucets have come out. 
Mm-hmm. Now, conspiracy leaky faucets have also come out saying <laughs> that they have <laughs> aliens and stuff too. That's right. But yeah. um, at least the secret airplanes that people have mentioned as part of their stories have actually come online and are being used. Oh. You know, like the, the anti-radar, the blackbirds and the then, you know, the sh- planes that can't be picked up by radar and that sort of thing. Right, right. So maybe that's what I saw. Maybe. I'm going to ask that question every <laughs> year that you pass over. Maybe I saw an airship. Maybe I saw a rocket. Maybe I saw Ghost a rockets. Saucer. They're spookier than regular rockets. <laughs> Maybe I saw some geese. Maybe I saw a UFO. So, the uh, ever since then, flying uh, aliens have had flying saucers. So, like, in, in pop culture and media, that's what they look like. Movies from that period, Day the Earth Stood Still. 1951, Flying Saucer. Invaders from Mars, 1953, Flying Saucer. Earth versus the Flying Saucers, airships. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> would it be Flying Saucer? <laughs> it would. That's, that's a Ray Harryhausen movie, <laughs> if you like him. The guy who does all the, sp- the yeah, stop motion special effects. Great. I don't Great. really understand the point of hiring him to just like animate Flying Saucers, but they did. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was 1956. And, and weirdly, at the same time as all these very paranoid movies about like interplanetary warfare were being made what was happening in in the real life alien contact stuff was these contactees who were like like i said you know were gurus and and leading these cults and religions and they're so funny because they would always claim that like the aliens are coming from like mars or venus and you know uh, you know at the beginning of the 60s when the space probes actually reached those planets and people realized that nobody could live on them <laughs> it, it kind of threw a spanner in the works but that their aliens were very friendly. They always pictured them as being very human and okay. tall and blonde. And in fact, that the kind of subtype of alien that we would now call the Nordics. Have you heard of that? I have. Did yeah. they mention that in the X-Files ever? Uh, I haven't got to it yet, but... Uh, it comes in? We're, we're on the greys at the moment. In the greys. We'll get to the greys, don't worry. But at this point, the, the aliens that people are reporting for real are Nordics. They're, they're helpful, friendly aliens who want us to become more spiritually aware and stop trashing the planet and stop using nuclear bombs and stuff right because it's the 50s and this is what people are concerned with okay so the aliens are here to help us and they're very spiritual you know so that's kind of the way it was before my next encounter the second of my two formative ones Um. and i think probably the next most important one in in the development of the alien mythos to the way it is now is the 1961 Betty and Barry Hill encounter. Ever heard of this? I have heard of it. I don't know anything about it. It was made into a TV movie in 1975 called The UFO Incident, where one of the main characters is played by James Earl Jones. Hmm. A little pop back to where my last podcast with Conan. Oh, yes. yes, yes. I remember. All right. The snake uh, cult. So this is kind of where the greys come from, in a, in a, twi- in a torturous, twisted, long-winded kind of way. Go for it. Because prior to the, prior to this, Chris, there's no w- one way that aliens are supposed to look. You can see okay. my air quotes, right? Because when you say it, what do what do aliens look like to people now? You're gonna have big heads, small, yeah, grey, little green man or grey man or whatever, right? Yeah. And this is where that comes from. Prior to this, in the science fiction and the the contactee stories, aliens don't look like this. Mm-hmm. In particularly in the fiction, they look crazy. There's a range of different things. They look like insects, or they look like Creep men, the or they look yeah. like War of the Worlds, they look like mollusks, yeah. any any number of things. But this, after this case, everything changes. So, um, do, 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 do. right, so this this is about a couple, the, the Hills. They are an interracial couple living in New Hampshire in 1961. 
Okay, they live in a place called Portsmouth. The husband, Barney, is, works for the post office. Betty is a social worker. They're both active church-going people and members of the NAACP, so that's the Civil Rights Active Activity Union. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're active in the, in the civil rights movement. They're highly respected. They're not considered fanciful people. Uh, they don't, they're not known to have any particular interest in you know, science fiction or way out there thinking. They were invited to the inauguration of the one of the I can't remember which president it was in the early sixties. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they they were respectable people. So, oh, that's the end of my notes. That's because I have to, to, <laughs> to tell this story from mostly from memory. But here's here's what happens: they're traveling back to their hometown in New Hampshire from mm-hmm. a trip in. Uh, Montreal, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, as it happens. Fun city. Mm. Also notable for some uh, mind control experiments. Oh, is that the MK Ultra? MK Ultra. Was that in Montreal? Part of it was, I yes. I didn't know that. Up in McGill. Really? And who was running that? Um, shady government forces. <laughs> US government? Um, I, I believe so, probably. MK Ultra was CIA. Yeah, um, but certainly they were MK Ultra experiments in Montreal. Really? Yeah. Wow. There's the they call it the big house on the hill. Okay. And it's creepy. <laughs> so what happened was this couple were on this trip, right? They've been driving back south over the border and they were back in New Hampshire. They've been driving for about <clears throat> five and a half hours, which is a lot for us, but it's not a whole lot in North America, right? Mm-hmm. They had they were rested, they had slept well, they had stopped for coffee earlier that day. So they weren't exhausted or anything like this. And at about half past ten, they start seeing a weird light in the sky. And it's big, and it's moving, and it's flashing all these different colours, and it's moving in front of the moon, so it's close enough, you know. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> They stop the car, and the husband, Barney, gets out and has binoculars. And at this point, the light is, like, right over the car. It's chasing them. It's, he describes it as being about 12 metres long. 12 metres yeah, long? Yeah, so it's big. It's a craft okay. of some kind. He gets out with the binoculars and looks in the window, and he sees, like... 8 or 12 people in there in the windows now the wife Betty sees nothing well she doesn't see the people because she's still in the car but he gets out and looks with the binoculars and he sees these people and he thinks that they're wearing like black uniforms black hats right but they look effectively like people okay and then she gets scared and pulls them back into the car and they drive away and the thing follows them for quite a while like for over I don't know how many miles and they experience some missing time Right, oh. so going back to the X-Files again. Yeah, it's a big hallmark of any encounters. Yeah, yeah, an important part of the UFO mythos from this point on. They drive home and they get there hours later than they expect. So there's like two hours of unaccounted far time. Wow. Um, yeah. That's not like, you know, you could potentially f- forget about five minutes if you're driving down a road for that long. But yeah. two hours, that's uh, a little bit weird. Yeah. They have vague memories that at some point on their journey there was a roadblock with people blocking them, stopping them, and they have vague memory of some kind of a ball of fire in the middle of the road, but they don't know exactly where or when or how that went down. You know what? I have a feeling I've uh, driven that road actually from Montreal to New Hampshire, and we ended up in like a fairly, I wouldn't say um, isolated area, but um, we like... It's a place that <laughs> you could set a, a UFO movie in, you know, uh-huh. um, up in the mountains. Is there any kind of exact location? Yes, there is. I can give you a few <coughs> local 
uh, kind of beauty spots with, with famous names that you might remember. I just have to find the right part of the article. I'll just be a moment. So they'd been to Niagara Falls in Montreal. They were coming back towards Lancaster. They were on US Route 3. US Route 3, okay. I can double check if that's the road I was on. Uh, Franconia Notch is an area. The Old Man of the Mountain is a, is a, a rock formation that they pass by. Okay. We'll have to. Indian Head. I, I've been there. Whoa. Did you get abducted? <clears throat> No, we, we were stopped at a roadblock, all right, though. But it was the U.S. Border Patrol. I would rather deal with aliens than, <laughs> than Homeland Security. In fairness, they were quite nice to us really now. Really nice. But, uh, yeah, we... we uh, I didn't even know that happened on that road, but we, we uh, did drive from uh, Montreal to Magog, and then we went down through by, by the old man of the mountain. because uh, That's gone, actually. That's um, It was a previously existing rock formation that crumbled and collapsed. Right. Still, that area is still called the Old Man of the Mountain, but there used to be an actual face wow. in the rock that collapsed. Oh, and like we were driving in the dead of night, like prime UFO Whoa. spotting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with two friends of mine, one of which actually would have been a, 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 given one of the stories there today. But um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, did you have any missing time? Certainly, there was a lot of missing time <laughs> once we checked into the local travel lodge in. <laughs> In New Hampshire, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fantastic. Woke, woke up the next morning, uh, but uh, no, unfortunately, nothing to report. We we do remember stopping at a truck stop, and it was just us there, and it was it, it was it's actually a very scary piece of the country. It's it's it seems to be because I've looked this up uh, on on Google Earth. It seems to be quite remote and and wooded, like a lot yeah. of forests and stuff. No, it's not remote, as in. Uh, Center of Australia, remote, but it's no. But I mean, for the for the eastern US, like yeah, it is quite remote. Okay, so that's kind of funny now. That's me? mad. I did not. I did not expect that. <clears throat> okay, so uh, to get back to the story, they they got home. They had these weird memories. They couldn't quite place. Mm-hmm. They had conscious memories of seeing the craft, and and the husband at least had memories of seeing what he thought were people inside it. And they started to notice other weird things. Their both their watches had stopped and never started again. Well. Uh, the car apparently had these big, weird, silvery circles burnt out of the paint on the on the boot uh, that behaved strangely when they put magnets next to it or compasses. Someone suggested to them that they try that. And why why would someone have suggested they try this, that? I think this was later on, after they got in touch with some people about their encounter and uh, either UFO interest groups or like um, mental health people were su- suggesting to them that they try out a few things. Okay, and then that actually kind of has sounds legit. If you're going out to kind of like reach out to different, I mean, plus it was 1961. I mean, the UFO field didn't quite have the, you know, the bad reputation maybe that it does now. Mm-hmm. Like, if something weird happened to me now, I'd go to the police and maybe a psychologist. Like, if I start reaching out to UFO groups, like people are going to think I'm, I'm already a believer. Like, yeah. I guess it would depend on exactly what happened, right? Okay. So they they find out that Barney's shoes are all scuffed up as though he'd been dragged around. The Betty's dress is torn in all weird ways, and a few other things that they find hard to explain. They both feel really dirty and contaminated. They take endless showers. They become obsessed with it. Um, they start thinking that they have all these weird bumps and bruises all over them. So Ooh. yeah. 
So, you know, something weird happened, I would say, at this point, right? What happens after that uh, is complicated. They make an initial report to a local U.S. Air Force base, but they don't want to sound too crazy, so they withhold some of the details. They don't... So the earliest recording we have um, is a little bit toned down from this. They don't mention the men in the ship. They just mention the sighting of the craft. And the the Air Force are trying to match this to some some other reports they've had and uh, trying to see if it matches up with any aircraft or other, other things that were happening in the sky that night and nothing quite matches up, although there's a few things that are close. So, you know, it's not impossible that there was a regular explanation. Like, if they just reported a light, you know, I would be open to... You'd be going to the desk of Mr. Pope, I'd say. Yeah, going to the desk of Mr. Pope. <laughs> so... They then have a six-hour interview with a guy from NICAP. NICAP is a, a civilian, kind of like a volunteer group who were taking UFO cases at this time. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Betty has read the book of Donald Kehoe, the guy who wrote Flying Saucers Are Real. I think this is important at this point. Okay. She knows a little bit about it, right. about the phenomena at this point. She also had a sister who had had a reported a UFO case a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, there's a little bit of background here, okay. which I think is worth bearing in mind. At this point, they give a six-hour interview in which most of these details that I've just given, they come from this interview, which is important because the details change over time. Right. right? What happens next is the, the wife, Betty, starts having these insane recurring nightmares about the encounter, but it goes way beyond what they remember consciously. Wow. So she's having the same dream for five nights in a row, in which not only is the car stopped and the craft is hovering above them, but it lands and these guys come out and, like, capture them. Jesus. Now, this is the first time that abduction is actually happening in, in the in the UFO stories, like, in the, okay. in the story. Now, it, it's been in movies before this. So okay. when I mentioned Invaders from Mars, the 1953 one... Uh, there's a scene at the end of that movie where a girl gets brought into a flying saucer and is put down on a table and has a medical procedure done and they're prodding her with pointy things. All of this happens in in her dreams. Oh. So they're carried away by these guys who at this point still look fairly human. They're wearing uniforms and they have big noses, she mentions, and uh, she describes what they look like, but nothing too alien-like yet. But remember, like, greys don't exist yet in pop culture consciousness. No one has ever reported one or seen one. And they have a horrible medical procedure, which is really disturbing to her. And she gets poked and prodded with things. And she has a really long, pointy thing put into her navel in particular. And yeah, she's really uncomfortable with this. So after the dreams, she starts getting more upset about it. But she also starts becoming more convinced that this is indicative of something real that happened. The husband is less convinced. He's not comfortable with this idea that maybe they were taken aboard the ship, mm-hmm. even though he saw more than she did in real life. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah. And what was their purpose of uh, being in Montreal? or Just a holiday. Just a holiday. Yeah. Okay. Just a holiday. So at this point, they haven't gone to anyone really public. They've spoken to a UFO group just to get some information, and they've given a talk to them which was recorded and unbeknownst to them that will come into the story later but at some point they become interested in the idea of hypnosis because they're really troubled by this the husband in particular is having a really hard time with uh, her dreams and her constant obsession with this encounter Mm -hmm. so they get hypnotized by a guy called Benjamin yeah his name is Benjamin Simon was his name 
He's a, he's a hypnotist. Sounds like BS to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the, this is where it gets really weird. Okay. So they both under hypnosis. Now, hypnosis is very useful in lots of ways, mm-hmm. and we still use it. But um, just because someone tells a story or recalls something under hypnosis that they don't recall consciously doesn't mean it's true. Right. It's still a very dreamlike kind of a scenario where you're you're able to pull things from your subconscious or your conscious and manufacture them into a story. So uh, up until the 80s, people would use recall from hip, hypnotism, hypnot, hypnosis sessions like and try and get them used in court and stuff. I don't know if right. you've ever read about the satanic yeah. panic cases and all that. Certainly in uh, the X-Files, hypnosis is used an awful lot in, <laughs> in that kind of uh, fashion. <laughs> well, at this point... Less is known about it, I would say. So they both report on a mad story while they're under hypnosis. And it differs from the dreams in several ways. It's still the same basic story. They're abducted. They're taken on board the craft by these guys. There's a leader. They have nasty medical experiments done to them. And samples are taken from them. Sperm samples are taken, that sort of thing. And... Made me wince a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a thing with the suction cup. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all, all, I mean, all of this stuff has shown up. Again and again and again after since in abduction stories, right? Right. Okay. And this is but this is the first example of it that got really mainstream uh, notice. People afterwards claimed that they had had similar encounters prior to this, but because they didn't report until afterwards. Okay. You have to take that into account. Of course. So this is not the earliest one chronologically, but it's the earliest one in terms of being reported, and I think it had a huge impact. It had a huge impact. Uh, you know, psychologically and, and in terms of media. So uh, where, where the story goes then is that the two stories that they tell under hypnosis are very similar. Okay. But this is a couple of years later. This is like 1964. This is January 1964. So they've had a lot of time to talk this over with each mm-hmm. other. So the stories are different from the original dreams. The creatures no longer look like uh, kind of guys with big noses wearing suits. They have uh, black eyes that wrap around their heads and they have... No, you know, they have minimized, minimal features like tiny mouths and noses and their mouths don't move properly and they sometimes communicate telepathically and sometimes with kind of these weird sounds and they're starting to look more like the greys that we now recognize. Okay. And and certainly they say that when you remember something, you're not remembering the original event, you're remembering the last time you remembered. Yeah. And the human mind is not built to, it's not a total recall mechanism. Mm-hmm. We're not actually built to recall things accurately. It's it's strictly a device that's there to protect your ego. So you, when you're remembering something that happened to you, you're reconstructing a version of it that is favorable to you. Mm-hmm. And as you retell as you retell that story, either in your head or to other people, every time you do it, it's yeah. morphing. So basically, what you're saying is, I didn't see a cigar-shaped object. <laughs> I was looking at a cloud. I don't know, but like, this is the problem with all witness testimony, isn't it? Yeah, You can have a case where someone really sensible reports something and there's no reason to doubt them, but like people make silly mistakes all the time without meaning, without any agency. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not trying to make money or get attention or whatever. It's true. So at this point, um, there's a newspaper article about their encounter because the, the recording of them giving a talk has made its way to a newspaper without their knowledge. 
And they didn't ever really go looking for publicity, but this newspaper article came out and they were talked into writing a book and eventually in the 70s, after the husband had died, he died in 1969, there was a TV movie version of it. Okay. So in some ways it's true to say that they didn't seek out any kind of fame or money from it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they seem to have spent certainly the early years being very upset and disturbed about this. And in fact, the reason they went to hypnosis was to try and see if they could deal with their problems they were trying to you know they wanted medicinal help really okay. for for a psychological problem they weren't trying to figure out what really happened they were just trying to see well something bad happened okay and and actually the guy they went to was an expert in what we'd now call post-traumatic stress syndrome did they have any uh, evidence on their bodies of uh, medical of, experiments so there's a report there's a, a thing that supposedly the husband had marks above his groin he had like a half circle shape of raised welts that oh. later became infected and gave him a lot of problems well wow. but like years later okay yeah so there was some anecdotal some anecdotal evidence nothing you could really hang your hat on but so yeah that's kind of what what happened was he died in 1969 she died in 2004 so much later wow and at, towards the end of her life she became very obsessed with the ufo phenomena she reported lots more cases uh, and i read some really kind of sad interviews with her with people who who went to hang out with her and apparently she like goes sky watching like three nights a week and thinks that everything going by is a ufo like every plane wow. every meteor everything is a ufo so she clearly became very hung up on this cause later in life Certainly, that area of um, the North America is is well known for plane testing, uh, specifically Montreal. Oh, because Quebec is so large, and you know they can send. There's a lot of plane companies in Montreal who send planes out to test in that. Uh, well, no, mainly northern area, but I, I imagine if you're in a plane, you would be scooping down over as well. Yeah. The take home from this story is that, especially after the movie came out, the image of like the great because these they were short, they, mm-hmm. the creatures were described as like four feet or less. Wow! So, you know, they're short, they're bald, they don't have normal features. They have big black eyes, I and actually, the there's a, an episode of the the Outer Limits that aired about two weeks before, I think they went for their hypnosis with a creature that some people reckon the episode is called the Bolero Shield. There's a creature that people reckon looks like the creature he described. Are they describing their hypnosis? I'm not super convinced myself. Okay. It's anecdotal evidence at best that either of them ever saw this program. And they weren't interested in science fiction by all accounts, but uh, I'm just mentioning it because somehow, you know, the, the alien, the shape of the aliens got kicked into this shape that we now recognize as being the gray. And that may or may not be a part of it. Yeah, you've you've given a pretty good uh, kind of. Uh, and I, I mean, after that, like uh, this as an idea, this notion of being abducted and the medical experiment and all that stuff, it's it's really common. It becomes really common after this. I would say reaching its apex probably with the X Files. Now, you know, when you say anything about abductions and greys, now p- people's one source that they think of, yeah, is the X Files, right? It happened like this. <laughs> yeah, but. There's a couple of it, there was a couple of cases uh, carried out in the 90s where psychologists and hypnotists got uh, people together and told them that they were going to have an abduction scenario, mm-hmm. and then they would hypnotize them and say, "Tell me what happened," and they inevitably got the same story with all the steps. You know, see lights wow. in the sky, stop the car, 
little dudes with big heads, brought on board the ship, medical procedure, poked in the whatever, <laughs> <laughs> probed. And then you know what. Yeah, but like it's, it's, it has become a standard story that people can report with very little provocation now because it's so common. Okay, so you'd be more inclined to pay more attention to somebody who is just like uh, saying, well, I was swimming and all of a sudden all the water turned to... Uh, ice and I was in a different planet or something. Like something very different, yeah. something very out there. Well, did you ever see Close Encounters of the Third Kind? I did, yeah. Do you remember what the aliens looked like in that? No, I don't actually. It's they're, a long time ago. They're not 100% greys, but they're short people with big heads no hair. And even after that movie came out, which was 79? Was that right? Was that old? It sounds about right. I think it was 79. Now. The... Again, the percentage of reports that included greys was almost 90%. Skyrocketed. Yeah, after that movie. So, like, pop culture has a huge role to play in how we perceive things mm-hmm. that are happening to us. So, is, is that where we are today? Uh, that, I think that brings us up to... Okay. I, I, I just had a few things there that I was going to mention for the future, if we have yeah. time. Yes, please, we do have time. Okay, well, we kind of mentioned the, the transition from what people expect on a day-to-day things where you went from airships to rockets to uh, flying saucers to greys and abductions abductions and all the rest but so there's kind of like a a notion at the moment well it, it's been out since 1960 really if we are looking for uh, extraterrestrial life there's a guy called freeman dyson oh yeah dyson spheres guy? dyson spheres yeah who's um Put forward this kind of idea. Now he he got the idea off a guy called Olaf Stapledon. Oh, from who wrote First and Last Men? And he wrote Star Maker. Star Maker, yeah. Star Maker in particular, nineteen thirty-seven, and uh, so th- there was an idea there that uh, of a Dyson sphere, and yeah. uh, Dyson put it in his book Search for Artificial. Explain to us what a Dyson sphere sources. is. I haven't read about those since. Okay, um, so. Uh, I guess the best way to explain it is uh, there, there's a, a thing called a Kardashev scale, Nikolai Kardashev, and he came up with this scale of types of civilizations, okay? Yeah. Um, so a type one civilization is um, a, a planet who can capture all the energy that is falling on its planet from its parent star, okay? Oh, wow. And... We're not really there yet <laughs> in terms of Earth's terms. So we're, we're almost a type 1 civilization. I, can, I, I guess we have the ability to do it if we wanted to. We're not capturing all the energy that's falling on our planet. Um, and I guess there's some other kind of explanations of it whereby you're also capturing all the uh, you know, wind energy and the geothermal energy and all that. Now, that's probably impossible because if you have something capturing everything, you know, you're not really going to have a place to live in. Type 2 civilization, which is where Dyson spheres come in, is capturing all the energy of your parent star. So basically every bit of... All the, all the energy that's going like in every direction, not just the stuff that lands on your planet. Correct, yeah. All right, okay. And that might let you know a little bit what a, a Dyson sphere might look like. A type 3 civilization is on a galactic scale. So you're capturing all the energy of all the stars in one galaxy. Oh. Okay? Right. So the Dyson sphere, Freeman Dyson was saying, if, if, if we are 
going to go out and look for a- alien life. We're probably not going to get in contact with them via UFOs or via radio signals. We're, we probably should be looking for a, what, a Dyson sphere. Okay. Oh, and he, yeah, he says that we should be looking for the energy yeah. output of a, of a civilization large enough to... Correct. And now, like a Dyson sphere, really, it's he kind of put it forward as a thought as an experiment, but... I, I, there's been many kind of ways that people have, uh, like, they've spent a lot of time kind of trying to think up of a, an engineering solution to a Dyson sphere. There's all sorts of talk of like self-replicating robots. Is who it go, about like go, building a sphere around the exterior of the star? Literally, yeah. Wow. Which you know is, you know, you can say it's impossible. We're probably millions of years away from that. Now I'm sure there's a lot of people who have worked that out. What, what it would take to build a Dyson sphere to encircle the sun. And then they said, well, if we encircle the sun, we're not going to have any light for Earth. <laughs> well, we'd all have to live on the interior yeah. of the Dyson sphere, wouldn't we? Yeah, so then they said, we're going to have to encircle the entire solar, solar system <laughs> with a Dyson sphere. Oh, God. And people have worked this out in many, many different ways, you know, with, like, robots. There's talks of deconstructing Jupiter... That's kind of Arthur Clark type stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like someone worked out, uh, I think it was like 800. We would need 800 uh, years of all the sun's energy <laughs> to deconstruct uh, Jupiter. Does that mean what, break Jupiter down? Yeah. To do what? To get the energy <laughs> to, out? To, no, to use its materials <clears throat> or whatever. Anyway, so uh, let's, let's say we have this idea that we have a gigantic, thin, hollow sphere encompassing our solar system. Wow. And it's collecting all the, the the sunlight coming off of uh, the sun. Yeah. Right? To somebody outside that sphere, uh, you're, you're not going to be seeing the light of the sun anymore, okay? But what you are going to be seeing is infrared radiation. Oh, which will escape the sphere? Correct. So uh, while we're going to be stopping the, sun, the, the actual sunlight, as it were, uh, that the sphere is going to still be letting through the infrared radiation. So uh, Dyson suggested that we should start keeping an eye out for um, signs of a lot of infrared radiation, but no oh, okay, light. Right, yeah. Okay, and he said as soon as we see that, that's a good indicator that we found uh, a, a mega structure of and there's there's, there's been reports of you know, fake news i would say yeah. over the last year or two with with people saying oh astronomers have found evidence of a megastructure yeah there's been a lot of that I, there there was one recently i don't have a lot of information on it and there was talks that it was like oh, it was just comments passing by that kind of blocked out the light uh but then one of the theories someone came up with for building a dyson sphere it involved uh, kind of uh, solar sails or kind of uh, uh, robots that kind of fly around the solar system and orbit the sun, collect hmm. the light in that way. And they said, oh, it could be that too, and you can make that jump from, you know, uh, comets or uh, asteroids or whatever. Again, all very Arthur C. Clarke type ideas, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think uh, also if you make the, the leap there from type 1 to type 2, so you're, you're you're going from it's going to take a long time to get from collecting all the 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 sunlight that reaches your planet to a type two, which is collecting and like basically building a Dyson sphere. Basically, you're the, you're turning the sun into your engine, and it powers everything. Yeah. And but once you have a Dyson sphere created, it's not going to be that hard to 
go to a type three on a galactic scale because your energy output or your yeah and your energy collection or generation whatever you want to call it is going to be so massive you're going to be just like you're going to be rolling in it yeah <laughs> okay so basically if you can build one like gigantic dyson sphere we're, we're golden we're on the oh, way to we'll get started on that then yeah <laughs> it kind of sounds to me like we're assuming a lot about yeah. how these like theoretical civilizations operate and like he he put that out in 1960 and people have been like it, it's really kind of it's a cool idea to kind of yeah. <laughs> throw around and people have been coming was he up working with, for city i don't think he was working for them i think he he had Freeman some involvement Dyson. was he with nasa I, no. I, I can't remember We'll find out he, uh, He's certainly not the same guy Who makes Hoovers anyway Oh good Not that yeah. Dyson Yeah that's right um, So yeah there, There's the the Dyson sphere And maybe in a few Quintillion years We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll have a Kind of a halo like object That we can live on Circling the system And you should look at Some of the, the Google images Of some of the Theoretical ideas They're pretty Maybe we'll put them of, On the show notes yeah. And I guess that That's this kind of Scary thing about uh, the the idea of a Dyson sphere is that if we are looking for extraterrestrial life, what if that life is far beyond anything we can comprehend? So let's say you uh, have the, the classic example is if you have an anthill and you build a highway next to the anthill. Okay, the ants don't even doesn't even register that. Yeah. So how yeah, do we even know what to look for? Yeah, like? so we're, we're the ants. <laughs> in this example. Yeah, so well, like we could be doing anything. That's part of, uh, I think, what they call the, the, the Fermi paradox. Paradox, yeah. Yeah, not all of it, but certainly a, a little bit of it. I was going to go into interdimensional beings, but... <laughs> it's a bit George Lucas. Yeah, I, I, I think we kind of put a, a nice cap on the... On the, the story, the UFOs with the like, uh, you're you're kind of run down there and then all the way up to what the future may hold. Okay, we'll hold that thought, and we might get into it another time. Then one last question. Oh yes, from a completely awful paper, <laughs> I I saw an article there during the week, and I'm I'm loath to read about this guy, but is Trump going to let us know if aliens exist? Would you trust him if you were NASA? <laughs> Would you trust him with that information? Oh, Jesus I don't Christ. think anyone's even going to tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Let's forget about that one. <laughs> Let's forget about that. Okay. Uh, uh, before we knock off, Chris, is there anything you would like to promote? Any websites or happenings that you're doing? Happenings. Well, first and foremost, let's read the mailbag. Oh, the mailbag? Ma- mailbag, yeah. So uh, we were... Uh, okay, so we didn't actually get a letter from anybody. <laughs> but we were talking to Andrew Ryan, and uh, he told us to uh, stop going off on tangents and to stop laughing and stuff. <laughs> But uh, this podcast is dedicated to you, Andy, because uh, I know you are an engineer and I know you're busy away working on that Dyson Sphere <laughs> and we'll get there someday. I'm glad somebody is. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, if you're interested in wrestling, Athlone, 28th of January. You've been listening to a very, very old school episode of White Atlantic Weird. We hope you enjoyed that interview. It is from a few years ago. A few things have changed in UFO research. Many, many things have not in the time since that episode was first recorded. Well, we hope you like what you heard. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have a little bit more to say in the future uh, about the coming of the greys in future episodes. Meanwhile, if you like what you hear and you want to know more about us, 
please, please, please send us a review. Get with those reviews, folks. We we really like them. They really help us. If you're a little bit of a smart arse, well, that's okay. Say something funny, and you might even get on the show. Meanwhile, uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter as well, where we are at Strange Ireland. Twitter can be a very, very bad place, folks, so make us feel better about the world and say something nice. Get in touch. If you, As always, if you have ever had any weird things happen to you yourself or any strange phenomena have happened to you, please do get in touch. We're ready to believe you, and thanks for listening.